Hey, party people. It is Thursday, um, February the 17th, 2022, and the time here in Egypt is 6.14 p.m., and tonight I am on an open Zoom meeting that is being held here in Cairo, Egypt, um, in regards to Malcolm X, and it has already started, so I'm going to just let the um, Zoom meeting happen, and we're going to listen in on it. All right. global discussion regarding humanity, I want to place this convocation within the, the larger context, if you will, of liberal arts education. This is Maurice Hines speaking. American University in Cairo celebrated its centennial, and within that celebration, the university made a recommitment, if you will, to the liberal arts. And in doing so, there was a specific statement in our mission that refers to cultural competence. And I think it has special meaning for this evening's conversation about Malcolm X, his visit to Egypt, his specific visit to the topography, that is Greater Cairo, and certainly to other parts of Africa as he traveled around this beautiful continent. The cultural competency standard within the university's mission reads as follows. AUC graduates will have an understanding and appreciation of Egyptian and Arab culture and heritage, as well as an understanding of international interdependence, cultural diversity for values and traditions that may differ from their own. I want to place emphasis there on the words that may differ from their own. The statement goes on to read, in addition, AUC graduates will have an aesthetic awareness of the various modes of human artistic expression and will be able to collaborate in a multicultural context. So within that statement, ushers in an opportunity for us to advance a discussion about Malcolm X, his legacy, his life, and certainly as my colleague Maurice referenced, that given our distinguished panel of discussants, we have an opportunity to advance perhaps this question, can we understand what does it mean to be educated? And perhaps even more, can we explore the educational journey of Malcolm X through the lens of transformation and perhaps metamorphosis? I would like to begin this conversation with our distinguished guest, Dr. Osman. Dr. Osman, are you in the audience? He's logging in now. Okay, he's logging in now? Yes. Okay, I was just informed that Dr. Osman is logging in now. So we will wait just a moment to join him. So we have uh, Mr. James Small, uh, Mr. Brother Ali Karim, Aisha Al Adwaya, and Solomon Idris. Um, As my colleague Maurice indicated, Dr. Osman is in Sudan, and during my conversation with him on yesterday, he did share with me that he was a bit concerned about maintaining some connectivity. So let's hope, inshallah, that he will be able to join us for this conversation. Inshallah. We're waiting for him to enter the conversation. Perhaps we can move on to Dr. James Small. 
I had the pleasure of having an opportunity to talk with Dr. Small um, day before yesterday, and I wanted to do so just to preliminarily discuss the way forward for how we can engage a conversation with such a legas of Malcolm X. And given the contributions that Dr. Small has made to the plethora of scholarship uh, that encompasses the Malcolm X legacy, I just wanted an idea as to how we could narrow that focus. And what I managed to do, and during that conversation, Dr. Small shared with me something rather fascinating, and I asked if I could actually come along on this pilgrimage that for the during the past 50 years, Dr. Small has organized a pilgrimage to the great site of Melbourne. And I asked him the question, why is this so very important? And within the context of what an education is, what it means to be educated, I found a rather salient quote um, that Dr. Small offered during one of the many interviews that he gave since he's been uh, facilitating this pilgrimage for 50 years. He wrote, he said rather, and I quote, Malcolm made the choice for death. The life that he gave us, the values that he left us, the courage that he set the example with, that's what lives in the rest of us. All of us are Malcolm X because he was every ancestor that ever stood up against tyranny. And that's what we have to do if we want our children and grandchildren to be free, unquote. With that said, Dr. Small, welcome. It's lovely to see you again. Since we are delayed with bringing in Dr. Osman, and once again, we do hope that he will be able to join us shortly. But given that temporary delay, I thought we could just go ahead and continue our conversation by talking about this pilgrimage and why this is so very significant and why do you think this might fit within the larger question of maintaining the ongoing legacy surrounding Malcolm X and how might it serve to contribute to our education and perhaps even to the evolution or metamorphosis, if you will, for Malcolm X and his own educational transformation? Welcome, Dr. Small. Yes, ma'am. And salam alaikum to everyone. Salaikum salam. We know that Malcolm religion was the religion of Islam. The Quran says, seek knowledge from the cradle to the grave, even to the ends of the earth, even as far as China. And in those days, we thought China was the ends of the earth. Malcolm certainly lived that. The pilgrimage, when we first started it, Sister Ella was the Genesis person who started it, his sister. I was her bodyguard um, for 18 years. And the idea was because the Prophet Muhammad said that it is good to make pilgrimage to the gravesite of the martyrs of Islam. In the beginning, a lot of Muslims didn't come. They said, oh, you're worshiping a man. We said, no, we're looking at the model and the example that was set for us to follow. And so when we talk about Malcolm X, 
And the pilgrimage, by the way, 75% of the persons who are on that pilgrimage every year are children from the high schools of New York, the junior high, and the elementary schools. We carry an average of maybe 20, 25 buses, 100 or more cars, and we charge nobody anything to make sure that the children could come, they can see the Muslim prayers, they can hear the history of Malcolm, they can hear what other cultural examples they need to take for their lives. And so as we discuss today really quick, learning the meaning of Malcolm X. In one sentence, I would say, the meaning of Malcolm X is transformation through education, acquired knowledge, and travel exposure. Mm -hmm. We have a young man, an African-American, who has a very tragic beginning. His father's killed when he's six years old, murdered by the Ku Klux Klan, who the father was a political leader, like he would become, working at that time with the Marcus Garvey UNIA. His mother would later, in his early teens, preteens, get taken away from the family and incarcerated in a mental facility in America. And you're left with this group of young people not having the stability of any family as the different parts of the family reach out to pull the children in. I was very close to his older brother, Wilfred, who tried to tell me how traumatic that was for Malcolm. Malcolm was more traumatized by his mother going away probably than any of the other children. So when he moves to Boston to live with his sister, Ella, who's a very upper middle class financially woman, very educated woman, he lived in a house with three women, Ella, his big sister, uh, Gracie, his auntie, Sarah, a school teacher, Razita Spellman, the other auntie, and his brother-in-law. So he wasn't a ghetto child lost. He did cross the lines to go where most of us who are not grow, growing up in real hard poverty to see what that life is like and become a part of that life. And he did as a teenager, and he got lost in that world. So. Malcolm, you know, we don't think of Malcolm as a big-time gangster who turned good or Islam transformed. That's not what we're looking at. Because he was a teenager when those negative things happened in his life. And he was in prison by the time he's 20, 21. And when he gets out, he moves into the nation of Islam and then into the greater Orthodox Islamic world in the last year of his life. When you study and look at him, you see this learning thing, I call it, you know. While he's in prison, Ella makes sure she gets him transferred to a prison that had a library. Mm. This is before he, Islam becomes his life. Learning was already a part of his life. If you study his biography, he was a very good student in school. It was the racism and the tragedies that hit the family that threw him out of the school system. But he was a well read young man and the library opened the doors and then when he was given access to look at Islam by the young man he meets in prison and then by his brothers and sisters. It's his brothers and sisters who are in the founding group of the nation of Islam. You know, Phil Wilford, uh, Reginald and his two of his sisters. And so he comes out and become a part of that learning because the one thing about Islam is about learning. 
you have to learn, anyone who lives in the Islamic world culturally, learning the Quran from cover to cover, I'm sure is not an easy task. I've never had to do it. But if you have to do that as a part of an education process, so learning is at the foundation of his life, and then it becomes the part of Islam. Learning is at the foundation of that life that, is, that allows for transformation through knowledge, through understanding, from someone who would commit crimes in the streets of his community, from someone who would commit crimes against his body with drugs and alcohol, from someone who would commit crimes against his sisters, female people, by selling them into prostitute as a teenager. That's when that was happening to someone who became ethically and morally fine-tuned. Mm -hmm. And it is education, appropriate education, we must be clear about that, appropriate education that allow Malcolm to become one of the finest ethical, moral example of a human being I've ever read about, heard about, or oh, thank God had the blessing to meet him on the one occasion when I was 16 years old, 1963. And I think when we look at Malcolm today, we need to look at what is education really? You know, people in the school systems of the world, we are fighting in America right now about the curricula, 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 and why it's failing. It's because our definition of education is faulty. Mm -hmm. See, we think the tools, we go to school to get tools, not to get educated to get tools. Education is to bring what God has imprinted in you out, whatever those gifts are. But if you don't have the tools of rhetoric, if you don't have the tools of writing, if you don't have the tools of mathematics, if you don't have the tools of science, if you don't have the tools that allow you to develop the philosophy and a worldview that would let you grow from the body of information that's around you, that you can integrate the body of information that is within you, because the very definition of the word education, it comes from to educate, means to bring something inside out. And when I think Malcolm had a deep understanding of that. When you look at him in the nation of Islam, he was an extraordinary teacher, an extraordinary educator. He's taking men primarily, and women, but mostly men, out of prison, on drugs, on alcohol, sending them to law school, sending them to medical school, sending them to college to get PhD. Nobody talks about that. This is an extraordinary education. Islam was his religious, ethical, and moral foundation that allowed him to have a healthy consciousness that would then allow him to be this extraordinary educator. We say leader, but he was an educator. And if that makes you a leader, that's wonderful. But he was an extraordinary educator. He used to say, make it plain. Meaning, whatever you bring to the people, bring it in a context that they can understand. Do not come with complexities of intellectualisms that leave people as blind when they walk into your classroom, when they're walking out of that classroom. And I've tried to study that make it plain concept. How do you teach? Uh, a worldview, a body of knowledge, cultural values, interests, and principles. How do you socialize the individuals that are in front of you when you are the Hodge, you're the Imam, you're mm -hmm. the Sheikh, mm -hmm. you're the PhD? How do you socialize them with information so they walk away better, more conscious, and more aware than when they walk in your door? Malcolm was an 
absolute genius at that. And so the pilgrimage to me that we do to the grave is to try to show the children, we're not coming to worship a man, you worship only God. Mm -hmm. We're coming to look at an example of a man that showed us how to master the world and how to live in it and produce harmony and peace in your relationships while living in it. While at the same time combating injustice and tyranny where you find it. And I think that was the Malcolm X I got to know in my years. It's been 76 years down here now. But in that time, that's what I've learned about that extraordinary person. He was an educator and a great educator. Wonderful. Dr. Small, I believe that what you have just provided for us is certainly a very critical engagement with further understanding just how important Malcolm was. And in this setting where we are here at the American University in Cairo, as I mentioned before, we have a mission statement that speaks to these exalted values of what it means to be human. What does it mean to be educated? What do we expect our students to have the capacity to do once they leave this institution as undergraduates, graduates? Some do come back to pursue masters. We have a few PhD programs. But I think what you have said should give our audience, specifically our students who may be in the audience as well, that education is certainly far more than the acquisition of a piece of paper that declares to you a degree, an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, or a PhD. It is more of a transformation, if you will, that occurs within the human being that grants us the ability, as you so beautifully stated, to recognize our humanity and to reach into the depths of that humanity and to bring out the best in us. As my father would often say to my siblings and all, that you always want to leave the best of yourself with someone. And what does that mean? And I do believe that, would you agree, Dr. Small, that perhaps the greatest contribution Malcolm X made is that he personified what is so very important to be educated? Would you say that would be his greatest legacy? Absolutely. You know, a lot of times people speak about Malcolm and they try to equate him with violence, yet you can't show one violence act he was ever involved in. Right. Um, They tried to equate him with hate. But he criticized behavior, but he did not take any actions against anyone based on hate. And so when you think of this Malcolm X, he was just, to me, he's still teaching me as I read his work, when I read you know, I, I like books, you know. So when I'm reading his memoirs and he's telling his day by day in Cairo, his day by day in, in Saudi Arabia, you begin to see a man who's a total educator. But at the same time, he's educating others. He's being transformed by that body of knowledge that he's newly acquired himself. So here's an educator that's big, just his whole life is based on transformation transformation, growth, transformation and growth as a result of education. And he did not go to the university, but he became a university. Mm -hmm. He mastered the encyclopedias, he mastered the dictionaries, you know. His relationship, I haven't seen anyone in my reading, in all the books, who met this man, black or white, opposition, Christian or Muslim, 
that thought ill of him after having met him. No one. That's extraordinary. While Mr. Smalls was speaking, he held up the diary of Malcolm X. In one of her most preeminent statements from her scholarship, she said, the popular is the culture, and culture is the popular. All too often, too much of our education about Malcolm has been informed through popular culture, that we see the glorification of someone who perhaps may or may not have been the gangster that is often so very portrayed of the Malcolm X persona. From what you have shared with us, Dr. Small, there was someone far bigger behind that image, that he was someone, as you said, who had a family, who had a father, who was, and that Malcolm himself would find himself following in the same tragic demise to lose his life not long thereafter. So I think it is incumbent upon all of us that if we are to understand this legacy, we need to take time to actually read and to engage in the depths of who this person was and to appreciate scholars like yourself who bring us such a wealth of knowledge about Malcolm X and his legacy. Dr. Small, thank you very much. I do believe uh, Dr. Osman has joined us. Dr. Osman, are you in the audience now? Yes, there he is. Let's see if we can unmute him. Hopefully she'll int- uh, in- introduce us to who Dr. Osman is. Ahmed, Ahmed Osman. Okay, oh my God, y'all, he's... Okay, hold up. I got to let y'all listen to this. This is great. Too long. Oh, you still look very young, you know? I feel my age, sir. <laughs> oh, no. Peaceful, Dr. Oh, Sister Aisha, great to hear your voice. Alhamdulillah, how are you? What a welcome. I wish you were over here, both of you. So do we. Yeah. Welcome, Dr. Osman. We're so very happy that you could connect with us. Technology is great, but when it fails us, it can be absolutely torturous. But we are happy. Peaceful greetings. Welcome. Uh, we on the discussion um, with Dr. Um, Small, and let's continue that conversation with you. I also had the pleasure of meeting with you yesterday where we also had an opportunity to talk about today's event. And I was so very enamored with the experience. And as I shared, what I found particularly intriguing was as I learned more about you, Dr. Osman, that as an undergraduate student at Dartmouth College was your first meet and encounter with Malcolm X who, as we know, gave speeches around the United States at a number of prominent colleges and universities. And among them, of course, was was your alma mater, Dartmouth College. So as I learned more about you, I stumbled across this absolutely wonderful edition of Dartmouth Alumni Magazine. And in this issue, there is an article that pays tribute not only to you, Dr. Osman, but also to the late and great Malcolm X. 
The article is entitled, He Was My Brother. This quote, of course, is from you. I want to share with our audience a particular salient quote that prompted my interest in wanting to speak with you prior to today. The article begins, Malcolm X was mistaken as the militant civil rights leader thundered in his Harlem mosque about how white people were akin to devils. A Dartmouth student named Ahmed Osman, who happened to drop by that day, a summer Sunday in 1963, said shaking his head, the gut punch of a comparison, which in many ways justified Malcolm's attacks against white supremacy, was inspired by a verse in the Quran. But in drawing from the holy Islamic book, Malcolm was relying on a poor translation of a key passage, according to Asmaq, a Muslim from Sudan and fluent speaker of Arabic. You then went on to say, and I quote Dr. Osman, Brother Malcolm, I challenge you, said Osman, hmm. rising from his seat to address the pulpit, which prompted scowls from some of the 500 member congregation. He went on to say, Dr. Osman, and I quote, there is no human being you can call the devil in Islam. There is no place for any kind of discrimination. I was particularly moved by this, that you were a junior at this time, and here's this prominent spokesperson, Malcolm X, if you will, invited to your alma mater, Dartmouth College, to give a talk. You had the courage to stand up and say that Malcolm X had misinterpreted one of the most important aspects of the Islamic religion that there is no room for discrimination. So I go back to my original question, which began this conversation. As an undergraduate student, as you think back now, more than 50 years ago, as you place within the context of having risen and spoken truthfully and challenged Malcolm X as an undergraduate, how do you see that particular moment becoming so very transformational for Malcolm X? Specifically, what I am asking is, you would later, years later, deliver the eulogy mm. at his funeral. But wow. even prior to that, and I think maybe perhaps most importantly, that you became a lifelong friend. One might consider that when you're a prominent person, such as Malcolm X, and to have an undergraduate student stand as you did before an, an audience of 500 and say, Malcolm X, you have misinterpreted what Islam means. And he did not respond in a negative way. His response led to a lifelong friendship. And of course, one that also allowed you to deliver your eulogy at this funeral. How would you describe Dr. Osman, this educational transformation for Malcolm X. How would you describe the significance of what it means to be a lifelong learner and how Malcolm X certainly personifies in his legacy 
that we should all embrace what education means, not simply as the formality of acquiring a degree from institutions of higher learning, but something that is far greater as Dr. Small referenced previously, that he allowed us to reach deep within our humanity to understand our souls. How would you like to respond to that, Dr. Aslam? Well, recording that that day, of course, I used to hear about Malcolm. I used to read the newspaper, Muhammad Speaks. And I was fortunate to be in New York that summer of 1963. So a friend of mine from Sudan was passing through New York and he missed his flight. So I asked him to come and stay with me. So he asked me to show him New York. I told him, well, you have half a day. What should I show you in, uh, in half a day? But I told him, like, okay, let me take you to Harlem. Because if you go back to Sudan and you tell them you have been to New York, they will ask you, have you been to Harlem? And if you say no, they will not believe that you have been in New York. He's saying Harlem. So we went to New York, to Harlem, and then we came passing through 125th and Linux Avenue. Then I see Muhammad's Temple Number no. 7. So I told my friend, this is where Malcolm X speaks. How about going inside? As you know, at that time, they would not let any non-black person or a white person enter their temples. So we went at the door. They were the fruit of Islam, the security people. So we told them, we are your brothers from Africa from Sudan. So they searched us and they welcomed us. And there was Malcolm. He was speaking. That was the first time I saw him speaking. And as all of you have seen from his videos, I never seen any person so charismatic, so overwhelming, when he speaks. After he spoke, I stood up, introduced myself and my friend, and I told him, we are your Muslim brothers, and as our prophet said, we are part of one building, each part is strengthening the other part. And then I told him, Malcolm, you accepted Islam because there is no discrimination in Islam. And here you come and you condemn the white man and the devil. Of course, the crowd was quite upset. We are a stranger coming to their congregation and challenging the leader. But Malcolm said, let him speak up his mind. Mm. I have been to the Sudan. I went to Omdurman. I met the most beautiful brothers and sisters I have ever seen in my life. But when I went to Khartoum, I found the white devil there. Well, for the audience, in 1959, of course, Omdurman is the national city 
of the national capital of the Sudan. And when the Mahdi conquered Khartoum, he transferred the capital to Omdurman. But when the British reconquered Sudan, they met Khartoum, the capital. 1959, if you go to the middle of Khartoum, you could hardly find the Sudanese. Everything was run by Europeans, mm. or you can say white people. Then I challenged him. I told him, look here, there is no such thing as a definite Islam. So he told me, look here, brother, the Quran condemns a white man. So I told him, I challenge you. So he opened the Quran, and he read to me, I, if I recollected verse number 102, chapter 20 of the Quran, which reads, on the day of judgment, uh, the word Zuruqa in Arabic means blue. So he translated it by blue is meant the white people. Mm. The white people will be put in hell. So I told him, Brother Malcolm, this is an incorrect interpretation. So he invited us for dinner at a salam restaurant next door. But I apologized because I had to take my friend to the airport. So we exchanged letters and we started communicating with each other. I sent him some booklets about Islam. Then in one, in I think his uh, next letter, he wrote to me, uh, this is it, if you can see it. Oh my God. And uh, dated November 13, 1963. My dear brother, may these lines find you enjoying the best of health, wealth, and happiness according to the will of Allah. I have been traveling constantly during the past two months and therefore haven't had an opportunity to answer your letter before now. I have definitely been enjoying the pamphlets that you sent me on Islam and it, is, and it is my intention to try and make them available to more of the brothers and sisters as soon as I can get the apparatus set up to handle it. I have a translation of the Quran by Yusuf Ali and also by Muhammad Ali. I like the Muhammad Ali translation better. Hmm. In your next letter to me, Will you tell me what is meant in the Quran, chapter 5, verse 51, and chapter 20, verse 102? May Allah continue to guide you and bless you, your brother, Malcolm X. So this is really one of the characteristics of Malcolm. He writes me again to explain to, to him the verse on which we differ. And here I was just, at that time, I think 20 years old. Mm. And he was, I think, about 30. So he seeking knowledge from a junior person like me who just dropped by. This is a characteristic of him that a lot of people didn't know. He would seek knowledge 
from anybody, be he young or old, white or black. And as such, he was really the most wanted speaker on white college campuses, not black college campuses, white college campuses. Because especially the young people, they knew he spoke the truth. Mm -hmm. At that, in my uh, in 1965, I was a senior at Dartmouth College. We had a course called Great Issues, where the college used to bring prominent speakers. And as all of you know, the 60s were years of turmoil. There was the Vietnam War. There was the, I mean, uh, wars in Africa, in the Congo, in Mozambique, Angola, Guinea-Bissau. And at that time, it was only Malcolm who used to tackle these international issues. Besides, of course, the rest problem in America. Nobody else. So the student body were quite dissatisfied with the speakers who were coming to the college. So they said, why don't we invite Malcolm X? So they approached the college administration, especially that Martin Luther King was invited in 1962 and he came, but the college declined. So they came to me and they said, of course, I used to tell them about my experiences meeting him. So they asked me if I could help them and have Malcolm invited. So I said, okay, I'll try. So I called him on his home phone number and I told him, ask him, Brother Malcolm, I want a favor from you. He said, brother, anything you ask me, I'll do it for you. So I told him, okay, we would like to invite you to the college. He said, by all means, I will come. So I started apologizing, look here, we don't have the monetary resources to offer the honorarium that you should receive. He said, brother, don't speak about money. I will come. So he came and he almost spoke at all the Ivy League schools, at Harvard, Yale, Columbia. So he, but he used to go to these colleges and make a speech and come back. Dartmouth's visit was unique because we hosted him at my dorm, which was a dorm of students who are interested in international affairs, and we had a guest house. So the student body went and met him at White Junction, and he came in the afternoon, the radio station of the college, made an interview with him. Then we had dinner with him, mm. the council of the undergraduate council, and when, in fact, when we sat for dinner in the restaurant, a resident of Hanover came and made a bad 
an offensive statement against Marco. He just returned it with a smile. Mm -hmm. He did return in a way, just a smile. So after the, his lecture at the Sporting Auditorium, which was closed two hours before the lecture, we entertained him in our dorm. The following day, and that was a custom at Qatar House where he stayed, the student body came, a selected number of the students. We prepared for him the breakfast, and we had with him an informal speech, an informal conversation. And Malcolm, for people who never met him, he was something when he stands and he gives his lecture. He's another person. When you sit down with him and he talks with him, he's the most modest, the most polite person I have ever seen in my life. And even when he speaks about racism to white people, he doesn't feel them. He, make, he doesn't make them feel that he is targeting them. And this is something really unique. He speaks about the problem. And he engaged them that he has faith in the young people. In the young white people. And he believed that they are the people who can really solve the race problem. And then when we, after, of course, he broke from the nature of Islam, he used to come and pray with us at the only mosque in New York at 72nd and Riverside Drive. At that time, the Imam was Professor Dr. Mahmoud Shawarmi, mm. Egyptian. He was a professor of chemistry at University of Cairo. He took a sabbatical leave that year and he came and he was the director of the Islamic Center. So after the prayer, we would sit and chat with him. And Dr. Shoharbi was myself. He really, we really impressed on him to go and make the pilgrimage. And when he came to leave, we, I gave him a translation of the book, The Eternal Message of Muhammad, authored by Abdurrahman Ajam, the first Secretary General of the Arab League. So Dr. Chowarbi gave him a letter to the son of uh, Azam Basha, Omar Azam, was an architect rehabilitating Al Haram Mosque. Anyway, he didn't know anybody there, so he just took the flight, went to Cairo, spent a couple of days, and then he took a flight to Jeddah. He was stranded at the airport for seven days. Oh my God. Chatting with people who were pilgrims. And after seven days, they came and they found him, uh, Prince Faisal, Muhammad Faisal, and uh, Omar Azama. They took him 
to Abdurrahman Azza. And here, how he described him. He said he was the blondest of the blonde. He had the bluest eyes of anybody he has seen. This man, he never met me in his life. So he asked me, where are you staying? He said, I'm staying nowhere. I was at the airport. So he told him, well, all the hotels are booked. I will give you my suite at Kandara Palace Hotel and move to my son's house. Malcolm couldn't believe it. That somebody who was white, with blue eyes, whom he considered devils, here he comes, he gives him his suite. And then he went through the Hajj. He found all the people of all colors doing the same rituals, living in a brotherly way. And he said, my experience in America never let me think that something like this could happen somewhere. And that was his transformation. Hmm. And in fact, it is quite moving when you read in his autobiography, when he describes how he felt when he stood there facing the camera. He said, this is the first time I felt my full humanity restored to me. I never felt so complete human being before. So when he came back, he established the Muslim Mosque Incorporated to do what? He said to correct the distorted image of Islam I was spreading all these years. And then, of course, he made the organization of American unity as a non-sectarian organization wherein all people could join irrespective of their, uh, uh, re uh, their religions. Unfortunately, uh, the World Muslim League sent him uh, uh, Sultanid Sheikh Ahmed Hassoud to come and uh, advise him uh, and uh, in the teaching of uh, Islam. And Sheikh uh, Hassoud, when he came, he entertained him in his own home. He spent with him three months mm. in his home. After that, he made for him an office at Teresa Hotel. So this was Malcolm that I have known. And as I just heard from Brother Small, and as I said at his funeral, they always accused him of violence. Since he accepted Islam, even when he was in the nation of Islam, he was never involved in any violence, be it overt or covert. None at all. All right, there y'all have it. Um, Brother Ahmed Azman, a first-hand account of knowing Brother Malcolm X. He was a 20-year-old student who stood up 
um, at Dartmouth College and challenged Malcolm about his beliefs that the white man was a devil because the Islam religion does not have any kind of identification for a white man, nor does it have an identification for a devil. And this uh, was the beginning of a lifelong relationship. Brother Osman delivered the eulogy, a eulogy at Malcolm X's funeral. So I only am able to do up to an hour on uh, this particular platform. So what I'm going to do is do a part two because they are still talking. As a matter of fact, Brother Ahmed is still talking. So I'm going to close this one out and then uh, hopefully join y'all or hopefully you will join me um, for the second half of this conversation being held at Cairo University about Brother Malcolm X. Be good, be good, be good, be God.